Hi everyone. This is Aniket. Welcome to another episode of A Little Life. A podcast where I explore the lives, careers and minds of interesting young people from around the world. This podcast is designed for anyone on the path of building a meaningful life for themselves. My guest today is Sanaya Irani. Sanaya is a creative producer for RSVP Movies, which is an Indian film production company and is one of the most fun people I know. Sanaya studied film and business studies at the University of Warwick in the UK and worked at the BBC in London before moving back to Bombay. We recorded this conversation over Zoom towards the end of June. So please excuse any audio issues because of internet glitches and the fact that we're using our earphone mics. I realize that this episode is a little longer than usual, but I am experimenting with long form. So listen at your own pace and please write in with your feedback. Sanaya has worked on films like Gully Boy, The Sky is Pink and Nutcut and is also the founder of a non-profit organization. We cover a lot of topics in this episode and I can't wait to share it with you. So, without further ado, I give you Sanaya Irani. I hope you enjoy. Right, well I Sanaya, thank you for doing this. How are you doing? Hi Anu, I'm good. Um I've actually had a really good lockdown overall i think a really good time indoors in terms of um i think for the first time i really got time on my own in a way i hadn't before and uh actually i mean me being a very social person and i'm someone who loves being around people and loves being you know outdoors or in crowded spaces um even if it's just the office for the first time i've had a long period of time where i you know got to spend time a reflecting and you know on my own thoughts and my own um you know visions as well as i think most importantly doing things i i've never had the time to do yeah obviously that's a good point and i was just wondering in terms of the your time in lockdown like do you have a structure to your day how's that been oh yeah so i actually had quite a crazy first few weeks in lockdown because i'm outside of lockdown or in the old normal as one would say i'm an extremely structured person when it comes to my day like almost crazily structured like people make fun of my diary it's that crazy right. like i'll sometimes diarize my shower okay <laughs> like i'll give myself a shower window time and i normally don't come across like this person on a night out but no, during not, the, not you know that but during the week on a weekday i'm ex- extremely structured so what i normally do is um i'm a big fan and believer of the 5am club though i don't get up at 5 okay that's the truth but i do try to get but up but you still believe in it okay no, i'm a huge i'm a huge believer of the 2020 so i've been doing it now for i've taken breaks but i've been doing it broadly for about 2 years 2020 so, 20 what's that yeah so that's basically um a morning routine wherein exercise for the first 20 minutes you then reflect for the next 20 minutes and for the last 20 minutes you grow in some way so when i say grow i mean you know you either listen to a video i like listening to inspirational things who that 
really like get me going for the day. Mm. Um, the exercise bit sometimes for me is not like hardcore exercising, but it's literally like getting up, stretching, yeah. doing something in terms of, I don't exercise because I'm not a morning exercise person. I love working out in the evenings. I hate working out in the mornings. So I tend to just do something when I wake up, like I'll either like organize something or like, um, you know, like, I mean, I find something or the other to do in my room in the morning first thing when I wake up. Um, and then after that, the, the main bit that I spend a lot of time on is the 20 minutes of reflecting. And that has helped okay. me so much during lockdown. How, how do you do that? that? Do you have like a journaling that, practice or yeah. meditation? Yeah. So I journal. I've, okay. I've never meditated. Um, I've wanted to. I've tried a few times. I can't say I've never. I have tried. But I haven't ended up really meditating. Um, instead, I do journal. So I journal for 20 minutes every morning. And okay. um, I don't. Like but free my flow? Home, no, my journaling is again very structured. Okay. My, journaling, <laughs> my journaling has a lot to do with like long-term vision and then short-term vision. Right, okay. So I always start off with long-term vision in terms of um, what my vision board looks like and what I really want to achieve. And my short-term vision then will literally be structuring my day and figuring out everything I need to do in terms of my professional life as well as my personal life. Um, and... Yeah, I think the days I do not spend 20 minutes journaling or structuring my day, I cannot tell you how different those days are. Sometimes in a slightly positive way because they could be spontaneous. Mm. Um, but majority of the time, it's never as satisfying a day. That's true. That's true. What I've noticed for me though, sometimes like when I go into hyper-structured days, yeah. As soon as it breaks, then I'm on the other side of the spectrum. Then I have zero structure at all. Yeah. There's no middle ground at all. It's, it's very much like a pendulum in that sense. That's so true. And you know, the other thing, Anu, is the minute, like there are many days I'm not following that routine or I'm not following the structure put down. I mean, because I'm tired or I'm mentally drained or there's some emotional thing troubling me or, you know, and then I'm really hard on myself and I'm like, you've had such a bad day you know you haven't yeah. done this you haven't done that this hasn't been ticked off and then you sort of give yourself a really hard time which I don't think is fair either so I think mm. you've got to find that perfect balance where you go into structuring your day diarizing your day knowing that you have to give yourself some leeway like you have to like yeah. I sometimes literally have to put down a bracket saying okay I'm gonna just sit with mom and dad and just chat like I'm just gonna like chill with that's them. in the diary it's in the diary <laughs> nice but I'm a big believer of writing things down. Like I love writing yeah. things down. Like if I hear a song and if I love a line, I will write it down. I might oh, never cool. find that. <laughs> I might never find it. But for yeah, me, it's, yeah, always, yeah. it's like, it's always about penning it down. The minute I write it down, I just feel like it's, it's a stronger in terms of my memory. It is. It, it's a psychological hack as well. Uh, yeah. If you see something written in your own handwriting, you're a bit more likely to believe it. Obviously, that's different when you're when you're writing like the name of a song or something. But yeah, let's say um, you know you're you're writing something positive about yourself or whatever it is. You're you're more likely to believe it if you see it in your own handwriting. Um, that's really interesting. And in terms of then your job, I would think 
firstly, correct me if I'm wrong in thinking that you work a lot on sets of films uh, for your different projects. Uh, and if so, then that inherently has no structure or I, I have I have no idea about like what that what that okay. day looks like. No worries. So um, a film producer is basically someone who initiates, um, coordinates and manages a production from conceptualization to completion. And when I mean completion, I mean everything, including distribution, right? So producer will conceptualize, almost find a concept or a story. Sometimes concepts and stories come to us as producers. Sometimes we go out in the market and look for them through different creatives or we collaborate with say writers, directors and start discussing ideas, ideating um, on concepts and stories that we want to bring to life. And we then get into the entire process of pre-production, production and post-production. Pre-production being, of course, you know, uh, conceptualizing, writing, uh, production being really taking that writing to floor, to set and bringing it to life on camera. Um, and then post-production, of course, involves multiple, multiple, um, you know, departments and stages. Like, of course, you've got your editing, you've got your grading, which is coloring. Um, you've got sound, you've got background music. Um, and yeah, and putting the product, really bringing the film, or it could be a TV series together, to then finally create the product that then goes out into the market. And wait, the producer's job is not yet over, of course, because then they go into distribution, which is a whole different ballgame in terms of the film industry and, of course, digital now. Mm. So, yeah, so that's pretty much what a producer does. It's uh, a producer is the person who is a part of the project from day one, right up until you're watching it on your screen. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a few concepts that I just want to iron out over there. In terms of, if we talk about something which most people in business and in working in all industries understand, it is a value chain. For example, when something starts to when it finishes. If you're a consultant, what I would do, the value chain of a project would be, you understand what needs to be done, you gather the requirements, you explain what needs to be done, you scope it out, you do the project, how many other iterations it takes, and you roll it out. Obviously, very, very... Um, simplified down. In the music industry as well, similar to what you mentioned is the creation aspect. And this is something we've touched on on a previous episode is the creation aspect, which could be like the ANR, so the artist and repertoire, everything to do with the creative side. Then is the distribution, what you mentioned. And then after that comes the marketing, which is equally, if not big as everything else combined. So effectively, what you've spoken about from a production perspective or from a producer's perspective is the creation and the distribution as of now. Obviously, with films as compared to music, there's a lot more moving parts. There's a lot more departments. There's a lot more intricacies involved in terms of in music, you might literally have just one person who's creating the music. Yeah. And then you're yeah. using a service to distribute it like let's say a company called CD Baby, or even let's go even simpler, like you upload it on YouTube, that's technically distribution to, yeah. to whoever 200 million people who watch YouTube. Uh, from a film perspective, there's a lot of, uh, how we said, moving parts involved. So in that sense, can you give me an example of like a project that you worked on and what you did in that? Like 
does the financing become part of it did you learn it in college like just run me through a sure. specific project so okay let's actually yeah let's look an example at an example right so say i don't want to name any projects yet but of course mm-hmm. then i can break it down and like we can go to a project that's released and like i can take you into more details of that but say for example a writer comes to meet with me and presents his script to me and i fall in love with the idea i fall in love with the story of course i'm like okay this is great let me read it read the script and i think oh my god this is a beautifully written out script this has to be made into a film what happens next is um us really putting down the figures right and understanding two big big um aspects of i mean taking it into a film which is timelines and costs hmm. so we then look into timelines in terms of when can we shoot where do we shoot how many people are we shooting with i mean the logistics are crazy but yes hmm. very detailed analysis of the timeline for example we can't shoot during the monsoon so if something came to me now i'd be like okay we can't shoot when can mm. we shoot it depends on where are we shooting do we have um you know all our hod's available do we have our cast available so many so many factors that play into hod's being head of department so your okay. costume designer your production designer there are multiple departments hair makeup um mm. and obviously often directors will have their preferences so they'll want to work with a costume designer is he or she available for the shoot dates so mm. it's basically bringing a lot of pieces of the puzzle together at the same time and the second most important thing is the budget how much does this cost to make mm. and of course timeline does affect budget because we're looking at how many days it's going to take to shoot number of shoot days is so crucial in terms of your budget because mm. every day costs you know it's like a per day cost mm. um so yeah, so then it's putting together your budget which is an extremely detailed excel sheet that every producer has learned to put together every producer can read and understand because ultimately the producer is not just a creative mind but also an analytical business mind to the mm. project so mm. you've got to understand those figures or oh, i've always loved math which has helped me <laughs> okay otherwise i know a lot of people who want to be producers but you've got to be good with numbers if you're a producer you cannot not be good with numbers because mm. you have to analyze a lot of budgets a lot of excel sheets a lot of numbers even when you're on set coming to you every day why is that why is your day costing so many lakhs or so many crores um mm. you know what are these factors are they um, actually how much they say they are so uh, i mean that also comes with experience but um yes it is having to understand the budget it is being able to budget um mm. and that pretty much so yeah so then once you get into production your shooting is a producer mm-hmm. on set or uh, yes does a producer have to be on set not always a producer could be handling something more producer related in terms of you know locations or legalities or because there are so many business aspects going on when running a production too so a producer could be looking into another aspect a producer could also very well be on set with the director um and during post production again it is an expensive process uh producers pretty much overlooking everything it's basically a very supervising manager like role in terms of making sure you're bringing together all the parts in the right way to create the mm. that's that's really helpful and there's also when we talk about 
you know, uh, not jobs, not roles, but kind of things like what we're talking about right now, there's a risk and the tendency of getting stuck in concepts. So when we say a producer does this, a producer does that, it's almost like saying, tell me what a musician does or tell me what an artist does, right? There's so many facets so to it. True. Um, and we, there's a risk of saying, okay, a producer is specifically this. Should a producer be on set? It's obviously not black or white. Like, you know, there's so many things like you mentioned a producer does. But from my perspective, even having learned something about the media industry, I didn't know, and obviously speaking to you a lot as well, I still didn't know technically what your like remit would have been for specific projects. And I'm also aware of the fact that it would be different for different projects. Exactly. So it also depends, like there are multiple producers on projects. There are smaller projects might just have two or three producers. So you've got very, very different types of producers within the producing team. So you've got Mm. the producer who could have a co-producer. You've then got an executive producer who is, it's another term for a financial producer or someone financing the project, right? So actually, yeah, that's, that's a question that I had was, does sure. the producer bring the money to yes. make the film? Okay. Yes. So it all, again, there are variations here because sometimes there could be a financer attached to it too. There could be a funding body attached to it too. Uh, okay. There could also be a platform, an OTT platform attached to it who could be commissioning it and pumping in the money. Yeah, an OTT platform is something that's served over the internet. So you would like an, a Netflix or a Spotify. A Netflix, is, an Amazon, yes, yeah. They are all OTT platforms. So they might be bringing the money. And They'll be you- financing it. So say even if a Netflix is pumping in the money and the budget, they're not running the show. The show mm-hmm. is being run by the producer. Um, so the producing team is never just one producer. It's Got it. It's a group of people who both understand the creative and analytical process to creating a film. I mean, it sounds so much fun. It sounds like such a awesome place to be. Like, I want to be the one who decides what stories should be told. Obviously, there's a lot of stories. I was looking at the RSVP website as well. Yeah. And the, I like the uh, little blurb that says stories that should be told, stories that are fun to tell. And there was one more, I think, which I can't remember. Must be told. So it's stories that must be told, stories um, that people go to the cinema to watch. That was one, I think you missed Okay, yeah. yeah. People yeah. that love, um, stories that people love to watch. Yeah. That's awesome. So that's that's like you guys as storytellers, in fact. Or in yeah. Sense. So I think, I mean, because you brought that up also, it's important to say, of course, we can't only tell stories we love or we want to hear, as in mm-hmm. on watch. I think as a producer, I take on the responsibility also to understand that I've got to tell stories that my audience want to see. Mm-hmm. So um, while of course, I mean, everything needs to have some sort of personal connection and some sort of, I mean, you've got to have a gut feeling why the story needs to be told, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you've also got to really understand your audience and you've got to understand what the masses or the people want to hear or watch. And That's a great point. Yeah. So going back to then the value chain, because that is still, it helps us conceptualize things. And again, that puts us in a risk of thinking in boxes. 
that was that value chain concept was still pre-internet. Now we're very much in not only value networks, so stuff like you're saying about knowing your audience. So you always have to have your finger on the pulse of what is pop culture, what is the important topics, what are people liking, and that's a feedback from the from everyday life, from social media, from other kind of information networks that find it way back into people writing scripts and then you producers as well as people deciding where money should go or kind of what stories need to be told. So that's also an interesting concept of post-internet that's very different. You know, because you brought that up, I think something that I'm really excited about is that beautiful intersection between connection and disruption. And that's what I'm really keen to produce and create. It's that beautiful intersection of finding an idea, a concept, a story that connects with the audience, but also disrupts the market. And while it's so easy to very easily get into the connection comfort zone and replicate or recreate something that already exists in the market, because you know it's worked, you know the audience is connected with it. So what do you do? You simply go out there and you create another variation of that product, right? But what I want to do, or at least that's my ambition through my career, is to be able to find that sweet spot, which is, yes, I am going to be able to connect with my audience, but at the same time, I'm disrupting the medium or I'm disrupting content I'm creating. Give me an example of a film that's done that. So I think an amazing example could be Love, Death and Robots, which is a series that is an anthology series. Mm -hmm structures totally messed up like one episode is 30 minutes the other one could be five minutes it's super disruptive in terms of the different art forms it uses right from animation to you know crazy vfx and like to very simple stories um dealing with dark gritty funky cool you know concepts and ideas but at the same time, every story has heart to it. it. It either, you know, dwells into love or loss. And all of it is just every single story you can connect with. But the medium, the structure and the experience is a complete disruption to what you're usually used to. And I think that's, that should be the future of crazy content creation. That's, that's really interesting. Also, it feels almost like then you're always at the precipice of doing something like that. Because if you're saying, let's make a TV show which is dark and gritty, for example. I've watched a few episodes of Love, Death and Robots. It's very cool. It's like, yeah. can't even tell at points whether it's animation or not in, in some ways. I mean, it's, uh, it's also like the best creators in the world coming together to create something like that. Like literally some of the best creators. But yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, but like, even if it's something simple, like, you know, let's not have a show runtime. Like maybe that was the fact that episodes were 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 50 minutes long was a byproduct of television. And that's what people are used to. And then, then you have shows mm. like, for example, Breaking Bad or even more recently, like Peaky Blinders, uh, which have gone, which have killed it on, on TV. But but that's exactly what I'm trying to say. See, it's so easy to find examples that are existing in the market that have worked, right? Mm. So what do creators do when they want to create more content? They're like, okay, that has worked. Let's do something similar to that. I hate that term or I hate that phrase. Let's do something similar. No, 
let's understand why that product connected with an audience. What was it? Was it the themes? Was it the genre? Was it the use of um, characterization? What was it that really, you know, connected with you as an audience member? But let's create a brand new concept, idea, story that still mm. disrupts the landscape. So while I can still touch upon love or loss in a similar way, and you are connected with it, I bring to you a totally different mix of like five genres, or I bring you a heist in the most funkiest way that you've never seen before coming out of mm. India. You know what I'm trying to say? And that's how you still continue to innovate and disrupt in the industry. Yeah, true. Okay. So that's, that's something that you're trying to do with your work in terms of Oh, definitely. Connecting that's, with people and that's disrupting. my mission for sure. Yeah, that's my mission for sure in terms of content production. And disruption, you mean not necessarily, I mean, it could be, but like not necessarily disruptive stories of like a new universe or anything. This is like disrupting through the medium you're talking about. Oh, yeah. I, I'm talking purely from a space of disrupting the landscape. Like, like doing something differently. Like, yes doing something differently, doing something, a disruption from uh, stemming from innovation. Mm -hmm. So it could be new technology, it could be new stories, like I said, just bringing a whole new experience because what's so interesting about film is because it's an audio visual medium, it takes you into a whole different world and universe. You could mm. teach someone sat in lockdown right now about everything outside in the world through this medium, right? And that journey can be so important in educating, evolving, enriching that I think it's so important for us to A, create more variation, innovation, disruption, and B, be responsible by doing it. Mm. True. Uh, actually, I have a few questions then. Um, I mean, it's tough to still draw. It's a bit difficult to still draw a connection because what you're talking about is um, so obviously so relevant in why you're doing what you're doing. I feel like in today's day and age, that's the stuff that people will relate to as well when they talk about creating stories and making things, which obviously everyone wants to do, right? Everyone wants to be the one who runs the show in creating films and TV shows and trying out new technologies. It's amazing. Uh, I'm wondering about how you got to where you are. I talk about school, college, whatever you feel has contributed yeah. to your journey. Okay, amazing. So. Um... I think when I really reflect back, and I don't think many of us do, but it's so important to do, and I, it's something I've had to consciously do because you forget, you forget experiences when you were much younger or your thought process or how you viewed things, right? And I, I do remember one thing very clearly, which is growing up because my roots, of course, my mom's half English and my dad's hardcore Irani, like from Iran. And I grew up in Bombay. I spent, um, you know, my childhood really in Bombay. And 
I, I can say I'm a hardcore Bombay girl. Like I love the city of Mumbai. I just love it so much. It's brought me back and we we'll come to that stage of how I've like run back home. Yeah. Um, but yeah. being the only child um, and being a very social person, I always did feel slightly lonely at home, which made me study less and always be like, playing in my building or like running to my friend's house or running out of the house to meet someone. Mm. And that soon led to me moving to boarding school, which was my father's heartbreak. Okay. Uh, till date, till date, Anu, he'll say it was the worst decision he took or like let me and my mother make. But yeah, so that resulted in me leaving, uh, heading to boarding school, having no idea what I was getting into. So mm. I'd grown up with my mother telling me like, I mean, her boarding school was definitely a whole different world because she told right. me these like really fun, funny, crazy stories. And I was like, oh my God, I want to go live that life. And I want to be climbing up trees and being naughty and like getting in trouble and all of that. And I was like, I'm going to boarding school. So went to boarding school with like this totally different impression of it and got to a very strict but amazing school where I spent mm. the next four years of, I think the most defining four years of my life so far. Oh, cool. Okay. Because it completely changed me. This was TISB? This is TISB Bangalore. Yeah, the International School of Bangalore. So it made me an extremely structured person because it was such a structured life, but in a good way. When I say structured, I just mean I can mentally structure things, which is something you have to like, it takes, it's, a, it's something you practice. You can't just learn structure. Like, what what you do you know, mean mentally structure? It's bringing structure into your life is something you have to gradually work on practice to get to a point of satisfaction. I don't think it's easy to bring structure to your day-to-day life easily. How do you decide to bring structure? Like, What does that look like? How do you practice bringing structure into your life? So something as simple as, like I spoke to you about having some sort of routine in the morning Mm. that can then influence and inspire the rest of the day in whatever way it might be. Like a writer might actually just want to, you know, wander and think and discover and explore, which is fair. I'm not Mm. saying it has, structure should not come with a negative, annoying connotation of Mm. having to be strict and, you know, like, almost like a principal or teacher. No, I think structure can, structure can have its own fluidity and freedom to it. It's Mm -hmm. just whether, it's just whether it's bringing what you want. True. Yeah. I mean, there is trial and error over there. Exactly. No, but also like what I'm trying to say is you can structure your day to say, I literally don't want to, I don't want to do anything mentally, um, uh, mentally draining today mm. you know mm. that's still structure that's still saying i'm gonna spend the first half of today just watching a few films and you know exploring these genres and like that's what i do i do that on sundays okay nice <laughs> um but yeah okay so just going back so boarding school was yeah. one half a journey <laughs> <laughs> yeah um that actually brings me to a very one of the craziest stories I've had so far, which is go on. So, so I was in school, I was in boarding school, and I was I did always have 
quite a mismatch of um, subjects and interests. Um, so, yeah, so in an Indian education system, having doing the IB diploma, I had three HLs, which were English, economics, and theatre studies. And I think I was the only one in the history of my school, definitely in my batch, who was doing both theatre studies and economics at a higher level. And everyone was like, what are you even going to do with that? Yeah. Like, fair enough, you like, fair enough, you like both subjects. There could be yeah. a lot of people who like both subjects or were good at both. What are you going to do with theatre and economics? Correct. And to be honest, I don't know the answer to that question either. <laughs> nice. But but those were, I mean, my parents were supportive. My dad said, do it. You're good at both. You think you can do well. And I think there's a future with where the world's going in terms of career paths and opportunities. Um, just do it. And my father was my biggest cheerleader growing up. I'd go for these elocution classes and, you know, narrate these like really cute like poems and poetry and my father was in the front row cheering for me and like at the same time he was at every football match so he always mm. saw this extreme like um variation in terms of things I was passionate about mm. um so anyway so those were my subjects at boarding school and because I was um I had a like strong leadership in school in terms of I was head girl I always lent towards uh, politics in terms of something I wanted to study at university. So started preparing for, you know, colleges, college applications with politics in mind. And because mm. I had, you know, um, family in England, my mom being half English, I decided I definitely wanted to go to England. So applied to top universities in England for either politics, politics and international studies, or my dream course, which was PPE, which is philosophy, politics, and economics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was like raring to go, couldn't wait to go to university, got into a few colleges uh, for politics, of course. And the summer before I was to go to university, I happened to intern on a film in Bombay. I can't talk about the film because it never released and it still probably is like protected IP. But it was a really really big cool film that I was working on in terms of scripting and pre-production and I just fell in love with the world of film um one so, question yeah. there sorry yeah the film that you mentioned how did you come by that or how did that come by you so I think starting off you don't really have a network um if you of course don't belong to a family in the industry and it's being able to meet, of course, through family and friends, as many people as you know within the industry. So mm. when I mean that, I mean, you don't have to be a who's who or belong to a film family. You will definitely know one person out there somewhere who has something to do on something on a film, yeah. is what I tell everyone, is don't ever say you don't have a network. You do. Every single person in Bombay right now will know someone who knows someone who knows someone on a movie. Yeah. So yeah. you cannot ever tell me you do not have any connections. No. You might, your best friend's sister's boyfriend's girlfriend might know a costume designer who can give you one number. Correct. what I'm trying to tell you. So there's always, For sure. there's always, always a starting point. And that's how it starts. The point is that tomorrow you have, it's all about communication communicating and networking right yeah 
Okay. So w one thing I'll, I'll, I'll mention over there, and this is something that I did as well, uh, comes back to the point of serendipity. Um, and in terms of like even my experience after moving back to India is yes, networking is important, but in a very fast paced world, especially in Bombay right now, everyone thinks you're coming to a conversation with an agenda. So much so that if I'm speaking to someone, they expect me to tell them what exactly I am looking for from them. What have I come for? Um, what do I want from life? And how are they going to help me get that? That's when the conversation will be fruitful for someone that I'm speaking to from a networking perspective, which unfortunately leaves no room for nuance, no room for doubt, no room for curiosity. So I mean, obviously I'm, I don't expect you to have the answer because it's it's still so early for us. But is that something you experience and do you, have you ever thought about that? Is let's say tomorrow someone in this vein comes and asks you, Sanaya, you know, like I like films. Uh, I, I think I want to try my hand at it. I don't know what exactly where I would be good, but this is what I've done. You know, I've, I've been a consultant. Uh, I've managed big projects before. Like what would your response be? So I'm also a little different in the sense that I just love people and I live to meet people. So mm -hmm. I love moments when people come talk to me about their lives and I talk to them about mine. Like I love it. Okay. And I, of course, if they're coming to me for advice, I will give advice. So I will better understand their position, um, their want in terms of why and what the very realistic possibilities are also explain to them really what the reality is right mm -hmm. because my industry is one that is seems very glamorous which it can of course be but of course there are a lot of more um facets and you know um um sides to it that people aren't aware of so of mm -hmm. course bring reality to them but if they're coming to me for advice and guidance it's i mean I'll be as real as possible in terms of this is how it is. And of course, there's opportunity. I'm, I'm a big believer in if you really want to do something, you can do it no matter what. You, of course, need, you need to gain the skills. Um, you need to gain a network, which is so important. Mm. And you need to keep practicing what you've got to eventually be the best at doing. Um, but I don't think it's too late or anyone's inequipped to do whatever they want to do, unless it's super duper technical, right? And yeah, like, yeah. unless you got to be a doctor. Like, I wouldn't just tell anyone, go be a doctor right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, if someone comes to me and they're like, listen, oh, I want to explore film, I'm not going to just shut them up and be like, okay, tell me exactly. I mean, also, I haven't reached a stage in my life where I can be like, I'm too busy to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'd never, I'd never want to reach that. I mean, even if I were too busy, I, I wouldn't want to be that person. But there are people out there who are like, I'm too busy to talk to you. Yeah, but it's, it's not, I mean, yeah, 100% there are people like that. But it's not even that kind of person that I'm talking about. It's like, say, it's, it's exactly what you said, right? If someone comes and asks you for advice and you tell them, tell me exactly what you want and I'll tell you how to get that. Because m more often than not, it's not knowing the question, which is the issue. Um, and that's where the real help is needed because obviously people come with their own stories and people come with a shit ton of skill sets, man. That's, that's the really uh, key thing, I think, is it's we lose the 
truth behind stuff like transferable skills which have become such dirty buzzwords in mm. these corporate environments like or oh, transferable skills and soft skills i mean at the end of the day it's being able to do something in one place and then doing that same thing in the other place that's that's just the skill has been transferred in that sense but yeah more often than not it's know, not going to question that's the beauty of my industry and that's the beauty of my career path is i meet such diverse people in terms of skills and like for example these buzzwords that of course i and you are so you know used to or have heard because we've seen the corporate side like i work with corporates i work with the platforms i work with agents but a lot of writers songwriters singers mm. actors mm. have never had to really liaise with these people so mm. they they are living a very different career driven life and they come with stories that are so different to the ones i then experience or the conversations i then have when it comes to lawyers and you know the more corporate yeah. side to the business so yeah that's that's so true okay sorry i don't mean to interrupt so going back to not at all oh going back to the crazy story yeah 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 <laughs> so this was a good break in the crazy story okay so anyway so i get to university right um and i went to the university of warwick so i got to the university of warwick oh slight rewind i completed that internship and i loved it so much i loved the world i loved the story i loved the storytelling we were doing i loved the team that i almost didn't go to university the night before no way okay yeah i went and told my parents i'm not going i love bombay and it was i still remember we had like a long long i mean heated discussion for like 3 hours before my flight where they were like get on that flight now and right. my mother like my mother literally just convinced me to get on the flight and go with her they promised me i could fly back if i was not happy um so i get to university and with zero expectations and this is the biggest message i tell everyone who comes to me before they go to university or i'm chatting with anyone before they go to university is go with zero expectations but have the time of your life because that's right. what it was for me getting to this crazy story so i get to university okay. um and i get there i mean i've um, applied for politics and international studies space at warwick start the course great course um and because i happened to do better than my predicted grade in the ib i managed to also apply for ppe at warwick Okay. So I then thought, okay, dream course PPE. I've got the grade. Let me do it. But PPE before is... philosophy, politics, and economics. Got it. But before I take that step of upgrading to an even or not upgrading, but just doing my dream course in the politics department, I happened mm. to do a module at the film department because I just done my internship in Bombay that I loved in the world of film. Mm. and i absolutely fall in love with that module and that department and in my very first week at university i change my course from politics and international studies no not to ppe but to no. film studies okay. at the university of warwick so i am now studying film studies at the university of warwick one week into going to university and i have no idea how i'm going to tell my father because my dad is like my dad is an extremely progressive uh, person and he's like my biggest cheerleader and supporter and yeah. um uh, critic 
but at the same time i don't know if he's ready to know he sent his daughter to study i mean they didn't even think i'd be studying film right right um <laughs> so i've changed my course like on paper like everything is changed i've transferred over to the film department it's done oh gosh okay and i haven't told my parents and i'm like okay when am i going <laughs> to tell my parents um but i don't tell my parents for the first few weeks and um i told my father very late very late into the university life um like 6 months maybe a little longer seriously <laughs> i think properly yes um and because i was i was getting a little worried too in terms of will i get a job um you know what am i going to do after i mean i was asking myself a lot of questions that i don't think one needs to ask but being someone who just wanted to have a long term plan and goal i just kept asking myself is this going to benefit me in terms of my career this that and the other i also started doing business modules so then huh. i managed to like balance out my terms of film studies and business studies but my dad was pretty much in the dark to begin with um that's insane but yeah but it was so it was a change it was of course um a big change for my parents too what was that conversation overall, like oh uh, had you told them like he, most of the building blocks no he didn't he didn't believe me he literally did not he laughed he was like ha 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 no you always wanted to do politics you're not studying film i was like no i'm actually i study film like that's my major and he's like oh it has been 6 months yeah it, uh, this happened like and he like sorry you're paying tuition for yeah film studies just letting you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly so he he never told me not to but of course he it didn't settle with him as well as say a politics or business would and that's simply because of the mindset that we all have in india not as much now but of course um i mean and fair enough like i understand where he was coming from i was worried too i was like am i going to go because i knew if i came back to india like people were just going to be like you study studies like even people in film would be like why yeah you know so um a lot of questions in my mind i was like oh my god does this mean i have to stay abroad will i still get a job abroad the question of whether you should study film still exists on like the internet people asking do i need to go to film school yeah um but it was an in- incredible course it was it then became even better for me because i had i was still you know i was doing business which i needed to use my analytical mind because i've always been someone who had both economics and theater or you know the arts and um the business. more analytical subjects together so it became a beautiful balance i graduated with film and business and thankfully i got a job before my father got to university on graduation okay <laughs> so it was a very very happy ending because he knew i'd got a job he yeah. was thrilled amazing that having made that crazy um transfer in course uh, i'd managed to get a job and you know i found where i wanted to be in terms of post university life that's insane what 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 kind of stuff did you learn in film studies 
So my course was not practical at all. It was a more theoretical course where we actually studied the entire history of film. We studied um, the types of film in terms of, um, you know, Hollywood film. We studied film from different parts of the world, like Japanese cinema, French cinema, um, and the role of film and how important it is in the world, in terms of shaping the world, in terms of raising leaders of tomorrow, in terms of influencing, educating lives and people and communities and nationalities and entire continents, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it was amazing because we had such an amazing faculty in a sense that they were the theorists we were studying. Like they had come up with the film theory and they were basically bringing to life everything film had done so far in terms of shaping this world. And that was great for us as the future of film because we were taught how much responsibility, capability and potential this art form has. And I don't think we realize it. Like, I don't think people realize how influential the medium can be. A film can teach, a, you know, the youth more than an entire curriculum in school can. That is the mm. power of a film in the world today or content in the world today. Mm. Because it can gain the attention and the identification with an audience member in a way a lot of books, a lot of subjects at school, and a lot of role models can't. No, that's, that's very true, yeah. Uh, through powerful films, through powerful stories, um, those characters kind of stay with people. And it's, it's the whole kind of coming together of different forms of storytelling, of the background score, of the actors, obviously, themselves. Um, it's, it's basically, I know it's an amalgamation of all these art forms, right? It's an amalgamation of uh, text that you have to, have to sometimes experience at school or have to engage with the school. It's sound and music. That's mm. every child loves sound and music. You're grown up being sung to or you're hearing lullabies, you know? Correct. It's, it's also then, really relevant and maybe this we can get to your um, job at the BBC then is the distribution aspect of it. Do you want to touch a bit about um, how you went from the, the kind of big picture thinking of the importance of film and like how that medium is uh, relevant in people's lives to then the more business side of things? Like how did you go in effect, transitioning from the uni side of things into the real world, and obviously then moving back to India as well. So straight off to university, I did not give myself a break, which I wouldn't say I regret, but I wish I had. Okay. <laughs> but no, I did, I did take a short break, and then I joined the BBC in London, so the British Broadcasting Corporation in London. Mm -hmm. which was pretty much a dream come true for me. I'm it sure. was, it was really, it made me feel really satisfied with the decision I'd made to switch course. 
it made me feel accomplished to a certain degree in terms of all the hard work I'd put into university. It was also a very difficult job to get. Like, I worked my ass off for that job. Like, I don't what, think... What was the job? So I was part of a producing team at the BBC. But getting into the BBC is very difficult, especially as... On, I didn't have I don't have an English passport or I didn't have a work visa um, as in I didn't have oh, I could not just stay back in the UK I had to own yeah. that place but I still remember I walk it's so it's so I was at the Oxford Circus office which is the main office which is literally just down Oxford Street heart of London beautiful glass building with all these reporters walking in and out I would basically walk into the building every day and see BBC Worldwide um, mm. and, you know, BBC News right in front of me and then go up to my desk. And I was like, whoa, like my father's probably just watching that man talking to the camera right now, yeah. sitting in Mumbai. <laughs> but yeah, like it was just, it was, it was a dream come true for, for me. Fair, fair. And then you quit. So I didn't exactly quit. Oh, no. <laughs> no, okay, actually, okay. actually, after the BBC, I joined, it was a big decision again. I joined another company called TBF International in London, which is a fantastic company, but a much smaller company. And that was a big decision I took in terms of greater responsibility, uh, but smaller establishment in terms of, you know, um, the foundation and, the idea of great growth and amazing mentorship because I was working under some amazing people. In, I mean, even at the BBC, it was like my dreams were coming true with the amount of people I was, you know, um, working with and being mentored by. But uh, TBF International gave me great growth. And I really thought at that stage, it was the right time for me to make that move and see myself really grow. So went to TBF International, loved working with them. And then came... The big decision of moving back to Mumbai. Yeah. Okay. How did that come about? <laughs> so Anu, I think this is your and my, like, I think something we resonate with the most in terms of a chapter in our life. And mm -hmm. I think everyone who's studied and worked abroad and then come back to Bombay, I think this is such an emotional and relevant point in this conversation for them because everyone goes through their own crazy roller coaster ride when it comes to moving back home right mm -hmm. um some of for some obviously the decision is a lot easier and quicker for me it was a year and a half of struggling with should i should i not should i should i not yeah i mean i hope i never have to struggle with anything for that long like that Fair, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. a marriage. <laughs> should I, should I not? <laughs> should I, should I not? Um, but yeah, it was a year and a half of questioning whether I should move back to Bombay. Was there, I think that... Hmm, yeah, I was going to ask, was there, was there an overarching reason? Or was it, um, like, what, what prompted that at the start? Did you always so I, know that you wanted to come back? Yeah, I think there were, I, yes, so that for sure. So I always, always knew that I was going to eventually settle down in Bombay 
or okay. and I still know that like a lot of people tell me oh isn't that like short-sighted or how can you be so sure and I'm like no I'm sure like okay if I've spent more than half my life so far away from home and the one thing I could not be more sure about is I want to settle down in the city like being away for that long having experienced things outside and of course there's a lot more to experience outside of Bombay but I know I want to be based in Bombay and I couldn't be mm. more sure about that so I was sure about that but the big question was when do I make that transition because everything in London was just great like there was yeah, no exactly hardcore reason of course there were days where I was like oh my god I hate walking to that bus stop and having to do this that and the other or um you know or cooking for myself every single day why can't mum be around or this one or that one but um all in all it was a great life in London like I didn't have any major complaint to have to leave mm-hmm yeah, no, and I mean, it, it's, it's so also, true. And it's also now, you're like, oh, there are, am I making this transition too soon? Mm-hmm. Like, is there still more scope? Because I know both you and I want the experience. We want the growth. We want the scope that's out there. And there's always more, you know? So it's, should I get more of it? Should I gain more of it and then move back? When's the right time? Yeah, there's more in that on both sides, right? There's there's more to be gained by switching, but then what if there's still some more on this side of the fence before before making that switch? And you and I switched at pretty much this like very close to each other, right? You were a few months after me. I was I moved back in September 2018. Exactly a year after me. Exactly a year after. Okay, okay. Yeah, my decision was very quick. I think How I, long I did got. Uh, I I think I took about three months, three months or four months of from making the decision of, oh, this could be possible. I remember coming to Bombay for a visit in Feb of 2018, and. If you had asked me before the flight to Bombay, I would I would have told you, I'm I, I live in London now. Like I'm going to live in London for the rest of my life. And then I came to Bombay for a week, and then I went back, and then a seed had been planted in my head. So in Feb I started thinking maybe I could move back, and that was also maybe I could move back to do music, not just like move back, but very much explore something completely different. And that was in Feb. Uh, I put in my papers in June because it took a, a month of convincing Wait, my parents. Was that, what was that deciding factor though? Like what made you make that sudden switch? I think it was... Uh, impatience. But it was seeing what the industry had um, evolved into back home, right? That it was, was more blue skies thinking, to be honest. Uh, it was a, a lot of the tech that I had been exposed to at Accenture. A lot of the stuff that I wanted to do in terms of emerging technology from what I had seen in banking and fintech and apply that to the music industry. Um, looking at how the independent music industry was growing at that point in time in India. A lot of things that I thought were happening in certain ways. Obviously, I had no idea about the actual workings of the Indian music industry and how that's different mm. with the rest of the world and stuff like that. So I keep saying that 
you know, before I moved back, when I was still in London, people used to tell me, oh, you're doing something so brave. Like we couldn't do what you're doing. And I used to think it's either brave or it's naive. And I still stand by that. And it was naive because I didn't know everything that I was about to find out when I moved back. And if I know, if I knew what I know now, I would not have moved back. So it was naive. Yeah, because the, the industry, like, the industry is so different from what it seems, right? It's the, the music industry is not just musicians. Do you feel like you wouldn't, you wouldn't move back? Like, do you sometimes, I wouldn't ever use the word regret because I'm a strong... Not for a second. Not for a second. But because of precisely the things that have happened or the things maybe that we have made happen also. Like the company that I'm working with, the people that I'm working with, the work that I'm doing. Oh, you mean those are reasons why you're sure the decision you made is the right decision? Correct. Yes. Right. Okay. Right, 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 right. Right, right. I get what you're saying now. So had you had more uh, information and less opportunity, I mean, or whatever opportunity we did have at that time, not knowing what we were going to get into, you wouldn't have made that decision. Exactly. But now having created the path, you've created, you're sure of what you... 100%. But but Aniket, think of how... like. Had we had that knowledge, we wouldn't have then, of course, made that decision. And we wouldn't have experienced, worked hard, hustled, and got to where we're at right now. So sometimes that lack of knowledge, I'm not saying we should lack the knowledge, but I'm saying sometimes the unknown can bring a greater known to you. For sure. And I think in in a lot of cases like this, it's probably required because you wouldn't 100%. take that you wouldn't take that chance if you know the uh-huh. real percentage of unlikeliness. I mean, also, you're really lucky you got brave. I never got brave. Not one person told me what I was doing was brave. Oh really? I got like I got like ridiculous. I got like what? Are you serious? Because yeah. like what are you even gonna because also I didn't have like a hardcore plan for Bombay. I was told I was being ridiculous, stupid. Um, I also like, I not just left my job, but I left a great standard of living and the yeah. most amazing boyfriend who I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. Didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I didn't once get brave. You're lucky. I wish I, I am lucky. <laughs> I mean, because I was, I was telling them, I'm going back to start a business in the music industry. And I had like some sort of idea of what I wanted to explore. And I was like, yeah, I have to go there and try this. I have to do this. So you did present a game plan. I basically said I I needed a break also. I never (laughs) took a break though. Which is again, a really important thing I need to say, which is I left my job in, so I'd never actually taken a proper break from the time I left school. Because I got into university. Of course, there was summers during university. But right after university, I got to working. And I, like, I really worked. Like, when it came to England, I think I, like, there weren't many long holidays. There were a lot of short holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I decided, you know what, I'm just going to take a break. Like, I just want to take a month off and just not have anything to do. And I moved back to Bombay. And the bug in me just got me meeting producers in that first week. So yeah, it was something it's again, it's the bug and you and me, I literally moved back 
I had to promise my parents I was taking a break because they were like, you've not stopped working since the time you graduated. Just take some time off and maybe understand the market better or like figure out you might want to do something else or switch career, this and the other. And I was like, no, I don't need to do that. Mm. Um, and I pretty much didn't tell them. I just went and met every producer I wanted to meet in the first week. That's and amazing. I was like telling myself, I was telling myself, oh, don't worry. You're just like sussing out, you know, what's in the market and who's doing what. Yeah. But no, I was then getting into the meeting and like asked them questions like, oh, are you hiring this and the other? So yeah. <laughs> I was trying to fool myself and everyone around me. Um, but that was a great exercise. And that actually resulted in me meeting with Ritesh Sadwani and... Um, you know, being introduced to the story in the script of Gully Boy, which I fell in love with. And I literally knew from the day I started reading it that I could not not work on this project. So literally a week after I'd moved back to Bombay, I was already on another project in Bombay, which was Gully Boy. That's insane. And I doubt anyone listening to this has not heard of Gully Boy or watched it. It's, it's literally a landslide moment for the industry, film industry, yeah, it was a huge film, but it changed the music industry. I remember the week I went to go watch it as well, uh, in Feb last year. I remember you messaging me right after, yeah. Yeah, it was it was such a good movie. Um, so that so was, you, that was how, did that, much... how did that go about? How did that happen? And, and what were you doing for that film? So, um, like I mentioned earlier too, I'm a strong believer in putting yourself out there. Mm. Um, Whether I feel confident, absolutely confident or not, whether I very known or know of the person or not, I put myself out there. I meet people, I talk to people, I ask questions, I want to know more. Um, Not in an annoying way, because a lot of people can come across annoying and I sometimes get annoyed also with people I have to remind myself not to because I now have a lot of people reaching out to me and being like you know can you read this can you do that can you ask can you help me with this this and the other so um I really put myself out there so like I said first week I met with every producer in India in Bombay I wanted to meet with and just to understand what they were up to people hate meetings where you go no more they want to know more, right? <laughs> but I was instead going to meetings being like, what are you doing? Uh, what's currently happening? Yeah, um, exactly. Carry- that's, that's what you've I was got, talking about also. Yeah, but you've got to carry that out in the right way. Like there's strategy to that. You've got to like, of course, go in also telling them what you have to bring to the table, exactly. right? Because it's always some sort of nego- like business transaction eventually. But yeah, as long yeah. as you've got an interesting story, I think, no one doesn't want to hear your story. As long mm. as everyone has an interesting story, that's where communication skills come into play. It's how you present that story and how appealing you can be to someone. And I think that's that's a huge skill set. And that's something that's, that's... That's a massive, massive one. That's so important today when... Ev- I mean, today when everyone's trying to tell a story. And now everyone's going online and everyone's blogging, everyone's blogging. It's why should I read the story or why should I listen to that story? You know, you've really got to stand out. But yeah, so met with so many producers, understood what was happening, of course, presented myself to everyone, told them about my experiences, my exposure and came upon Gully Boy, absolutely loved it. I was part of the producing team. 
So because I think that was another sacrifice in a sense for me is because I moved to the Indian film industry, which is so different in so many ways. Yeah. The film industry abroad, I did have to step down and learn the ropes in many different ways. Sorry, so still with Gully Boy, in terms of how did you, like, did you uh, meet with the producer and then say, can I be part of this? Uh, So, yeah. How did that happen? So, I met with um, the producer, Radesh Savani, and then after that, I met with, um, you know, executive producer, I met the team, and they better understood everything I had done. But of course, I hadn't worked on a film in production in India. So it was um, me having to learn a lot of things in terms of how productions work here, because they're very different to productions abroad. Mm. Uh, So yeah, so just meeting the team, them understanding everything I could bring on board. Me understanding. And you, you went into that meeting saying that this is my experience. This is what I want to do. Uh, what was that conversation with the producer? Like? I mean, at the end of the day, I had been a producer, right? I had been producing content abroad. So uh-huh. I don't think it really had to be ground up. We understood what producing is. We understood the product that had to be created. It's just the systems and processes to creating it are slightly different. So it's mm. understanding that it's also, I had to start building a network in the sense of vendors and, you know, those people, which I was willing to do and I had to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so a lot of work ground up again, uh, a lot of learning. And I I mean, there were terrible days, there were amazing days. but uh, You were working insane hours at Gali Boy. I remember speaking to you at the time. I was working, there were days we were working 12, 15 hours a day, like nonstop on our feet in Dharavi. I mean, I can say for a good few weeks, we pretty much lived in Dharavi. Like we didn't, we got out literally just to drive home, get into bed, get back on set. Like there wasn't, there was just sleeping at home. That's it. We spent like Mm. long, long, long hours. Yeah. I've had some incredible experiences in Harawi. I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, and that that project for you was a year, mm-hmm. just over a year? Yeah, so that was about a little, actually a little under a year. Okay. Um, and during that time, in fact, I, while I was shooting, I was still meeting with a lot of people in the industry. And that's when I happened to meet with my now boss, who is Mr. Rani Skruwaya, Rani Skruwaya. Okay, that's awesome. And so, for anyone who doesn't know Ronnie Skruvala, do you want to do a short intro? Obviously, he does a lot of things as well. <laughs> sure, he does do a lot of things. So he's um, he is one of, um, um, I mean, one of the best producers in the industry. And he also runs multiple businesses in the fields of education. He's also a philanthropist. He is also runs a huge business in the field of sports. Um, I mean, he does multiple things, but he also runs one of India's best production studios right now, which is RSVP. And he's just an incredible person, incredible mentor. And I think I've learned so, so much from him in terms of leadership, mentorship, of course, and grounded, just being absolutely grounded through it all. Mm. Uh, can you mention some of the bigger films that he's produced that people might know 
Yeah, of course. So you've got Rangde Basanti, you've got Swades, you've got the more critically acclaimed ones like Lunchbox. You've got, I mean, I think he's produced over 90 films. If you ask me my top five Hindi films of all time, probably the first two I would have mentioned was Rangde Basanti and Swades. Okay, great. That's it. I mean, he also produced like the most profitable film in the history of Indian cinema, which is Uri, which was like two years right. ago. A year ago. So, I mean, it That's is, awesome. it's amazing working with him because I'm just learning so much every single day. So he, you would say he's, he's a big mentor in your, in your life. Oh, definitely. And I, I think another thing I've been a very strong achiever for is trying to work with very inspiring people. Mm. I think that's my advice to my my younger cousins or, uh, you know, younger, um, either high school kids or kids in university who talk to me is I always tell them for the first few years of your career, rather than targeting a big name in terms of company, try to target a respectable, influential name in terms of your boss. Mm. Try to work for people who really inspire influence in the right way because that's how you learn the most. Mm-hmm. And I've always aimed to do that. I mean, I worked at, I, in my first internship was Times Now with Arnab Goswami. Um, okay. I then had the incredible opportunity at the BBC of working with some of the most inspiring people, including like, David David Attenborough. Like I've seen these incredible, incredible people. Are you serious? Okay. Um, Reggie Yates. Um, I mean, I had BBC News right in front of me, and I was seeing all these amazing anchors. You know, yeah. Tell the world about what was going on. Okay. And of course, then as soon as I moved back to India, working with Zoe Akhtar was incredible. Like she's such a powerful, inspiring woman in today's film landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, producers Ritesh and Farhan. And now Ronnie is, I mean, he couldn't teach me more every single day of my working life. That's amazing. Uh, in that vein, I don't know whether you'll be able to help me with this answer, but this is something that I've been thinking about just because of uh, the amount of work that's been coming through on my plate. Uh, I'm not sure if this is something that you would have discussed, but do you have any way of thinking about and dealing with stuff that comes through on your plate and separating that into urgent and important? So there's a lot of urgent things that come through, which take precedence over the important things that need to be done. And those important things are maybe like setting up systems and processes and might not necessarily be the most glamorous or the most fun things to do, but you know that they're very, very important. However, at the same time, the urgent stuff doesn't stop coming in. So you can, like how you were talking, prioritize your days, like look what needs to be done. But in terms of time management, in terms of people management, in terms of the type of work that comes through, in terms of our own experience at our age as well, is that something that you think about, deal with, do you have any tools to deal with that? I think that's definitely a struggle for me too. I think I'm still learning how best to deal with that. Um, 
So I go back to structure in terms of structuring your day, structuring your inbox. Mm. So important. Like yeah, so do you have any tips on that? My my inbox is a bomb site. So I'm I wouldn't use I wouldn't say OCD, but I am pretty crazy when it comes to my inbox. I will have a folder for every person in my team. I will have a folder for every project and everything is put into folders. Like my inbox is the cleanest, neatest inbox ever. And my golden rule is I should not have more emails, which is hardly the case, but I should not be able to scroll down my main inbox in front of me. Like I should have just enough emails to fill your screen that they don't overwhelm me yeah so i either need to address emails as soon as they come in delete obviously the ones i don't need or put them in folders and come to them at like certain times of the day or of the week depending on prioritization but coming to um your question about urgent versus important i think there's an intersection then right so on the very top of my priority list would be urgent meets important. You've got to understand that sometimes taking your time to actually process something and getting back the next day. Like I know for super crazy workaholics who are like constantly working and I'm a slave to one of them. It's wanting to get back to the email straight away and saying, Oh my God, wait, I need to reply to this. Right. But sometimes you actually need a few hours to process that information to actually understand what the next best step could be. And it requires time to get that realization. Yeah, I think also there's an effect of like our text, text generation WhatsApp, because as soon as you sent a WhatsApp, you know that the other person has received it, you know that they can read it. So it's almost like when you receive an email, there's a pressure to reply so, yeah. for example, that urgency comes from, again, let's say you're doing five different things as part of the same project, right? When you're working on a film, you're dealing with casting, whatever it is, budgeting, many, many different departments and things. If you're working on, let's say, I'm going to spend 20 minutes on a budget. And then someone sends you an email saying, oh, got this correction oh. on a script or something. Like that. And then that's head. right. So that's when the urgent and important kind of don't don't come together and that important gets pushed down the line. And imagine if you say, oh, I have something to do that I know is going to take three hours. Then that that, that never comes because it's Gosh, always something. Know, lockdown has helped me with this because in the office, I feel like it's very difficult because people can come up to you and you can't always say, no, I'm busy. You've sometimes got to, you know, address something immediately or talk to someone who's come up to you. Being at home has helped me a respectfully say no at certain times and be like, I will come back to you in two hours Mm. or be able to properly dedicate two hours. Like I literally put my phone aside on silent. It's not with me. Um, So for two hours and also, okay, I'll be in a stage where I know nothing is so urgent that if someone doesn't get through to me in two hours, you know, my production falls apart. Like I'm not shooting right now to be, if I'm shooting, I cannot put my phone away for even five minutes because something can go wrong and, you know, I'll have to like know it's gone wrong. Mm. But two hours, put my phone away. Don't look at it. Don't get distracted. 
I mean, right now we're cyber slaves, right? We're just constantly waiting for a notification or waiting for an update mm. or waiting for someone to message us to even get us distracted. But literally putting my phone away, reading a script for two hours, no distractions. I lock myself in my room. I literally isolate. Like I'm like super isolating. I don't even meet my family most days. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Okay. Um, and just focus on that. And yeah. I honestly feel like I'm reviewing things a lot better. That's cool. But there are, I know there are multiple days where I'm like, shit, I haven't got back to that. Or shit, I haven't done that yet. And I'm now starting to accept that it is okay. You know, like just take one more day, get back to it tomorrow. Because otherwise we're too hard on ourselves. Uh, there's way too much to do and get back to and to respond to in a day. Yeah while you can try to achieve all of it, it's better to schedule it realistically and of course achieve it within a certain timeline. Yeah. Um, I think that realization also, it feels like a very personal journey, which I've just not, I'm just not there yet. I'll say those words to you. Oh, you need to find a balance and we need to be okay with the fact that we're not going to get to everything. I still won't be able to do it. I'll still get stressed, you know, when, when I get that email. Um, at 11 p.m. Oh, yeah, when, I know what you're saying. You know, I know exactly what you're saying. So, I'll tell you, I'll just tell you one more thing I'm struggling with. I don't know whether you're struggling with it, but it's this, am I spending enough time on one thing? Because 100%. we do so many things at the moment. Like I can tell you right now, you've got your job and you've got this podcast going, right? Mm-hmm. there must be days where you're thinking oh my god I need to give so much more time to that or the thought of could I be given giving more time to that but instead that is taking up the time yeah yeah absolutely and, and that's- that messes with my head like I'm just like I'm just like am I doing too much should I not be doing that should I only be doing that but then I'm like no wait I've got to do both yeah. and you know like multiple thoughts yeah, 100%, 100%. And this is something that uh, I actually mentioned in in the previous podcast is that feeling of enoughness and overwhelm. This is coming from a place of overwhelm and not only work-related, like, oh, I'm spending too much time on A, should I be spending more time on B? But also outside of the scope of work, am I spending that time with family? Am I learning about my friends? Am I learning about the news? I don't know much of what's happening outside of my bubble during this lockdown period. Uh, I read the news a little bit, but I'm going to admit, I don't know much of what's going on in most places. And it's a dangerous place like to get all of your information and news from social media. Um, Extremely dangerous. Yeah. No, and, this, and this whole idea of enoughness is so troublesome because you know it's all choice. Exactly. It's all choice. So at the start of this pandemic, I was super absorbed into the news. Like I was listening to every interview. I was reading every statistic. I was obsessed. And I've gradually like moved out. And there are days where I'm like, oh my God, am I not reading enough about it? Do I not know enough about it? Yeah. And then I'm like, oh wait, am I now wasting too much time on like watching the news about this? Should I be like, it's this crazy like space of you've got a choice to do whatever you want to do or whatever you should do. Yeah. And the big question is, 
it boils down to time management is where do you see yourself investing the time absolutely it's that time management and emotion management in a way because you know that what you're like that it do all those inputs are going to result in thoughts feelings of different 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 things so that's also that's a big part so true that's so true because the time invested emotionally i mean it impacts you emotionally in so many ways yeah uh and also now that now that we're on time and in the interest of time you've obviously done so much we've spoken about so much in terms of where you've come from studying to working to moving back and to the projects that you've worked on as well as the people that you've worked with uh listeners of this podcast um we haven't even touched on the community aspect of all the stuff that you're doing which i hope we'll touch on in another podcast um but for now do you want to just bring up this kind of uh what that you were mentioning earlier about age yeah so i think two big chapters brought two big ideas to mind and made me think a lot about experience and age so mm-hmm. i think my chapter the bbc brought a lot of thought and learnings in terms of experience and then my chapter tbf international and having moved back to india brought a lot of thought and deep thinking about age uh mm. experience in terms of how important it is how qualitative and quantitative it is the experience um, itself experience itself so how mm-hmm. the quality of experience is so important and the time invested in experience is so important sorry um, okay um do you, can you just explain that a bit in sure. like so articulate say, that in a different way so yeah so when i say quality of experience it's who your mentors are who your leaders are who the team is what is the project you're working on or what is what are you working towards what is the objective what is the aim do you resonate with these um do they inspire you do they empower you do do they bring learnings to your life mm. do they enrich mm. your life in ways you want to be enriched are they bringing greater good to the world are they shaping the world in a certain way are they impacting people places or things and um, how do you abstract this to someone who's doing let's say a service job i don't mean to interrupt but every single service product employment results it's again impact. just the story that we tell ourselves every everything results in impact in some way or the other you're impacting something you're impacting mm. someone you're impacting the world in some way mm. and it's whether you resonate with this and whether it is an experience you want to live that's how mm-hmm. simple it is it does not have to be saving the world if you don't want to save the world i'm a big mm. believer in saving the world and i'll try to tell you to save the world but the mm. fact is that if you want to but it's still an experience you want to have then yeah then you're living your experience um so the bbc really gave me an insight into experience and how important it is to better understand the world we're living in mm. and the person we are because it's experiences that help us understand the exterior as well as understand the interior in terms of who we are right 
um, because experiences make up make us and our stories at the end of the day. What are our stories? Who am I? Who who are you? What am I telling you right now? I'm telling you my story. If I break that down, what is it? My experiences. That's yeah, yeah. So, and it's our perspective I, of our experiences as well. I think a, like how do it, I view my experience? Definitely, but I think it also has facts to it that are crystal clear right and do not really have to be experience or perspective driven as sure. in something as simple as having worked on like wildlife programming at the bbc brought that world in front of me that i never thought i'd be interested in like that's just a fact like that was an experience i never thought i'd lived and i got to live it and it changed my whole idea about nature and the wild mm. you know and that also leads me to say travel like i am a travel buff but that's only because i experimented a lot travel is experimentation i experimented it a lot experimented with it a lot after university and mm. even during university but a lot after when i started earning and i was able to and it changed my life those were experiences that changed my life like mm. people i met places i went food i ate things i saw i was like oh my god like this is the world like this is what we are living for you know mm. and like those experience and that's where i mean experience is so important it changes sure. your life and then i come to age which is something i have always struggled with in terms of acceptance in terms of portrayal in terms of resistance we we live in a sexist and an ageist world people might disagree when it comes to some industries many jobs but it exists and it exists in a lot of places and it exists very starkly for young ambitious women because they face both very strong um and this is your experience a, in the uk and in india both across the world yeah and while i was working in the uk i was also working heavily with asia and africa so i did i traveled a lot with work so i also got to meet interact with the professional world in many different parts of the world hmm. and i experienced it everywhere and so as a young ambitious woman i faced both very strongly and that made me start asking questions that i should have not asked in terms of capability in terms of that number being good enough my age being good enough because you're so young because i was young yeah and i was doing a lot of things um people much older than me were in my position doing mm. and i'm very honest about it today i was hiding my age and i still hide my age i still don't openly talk about my age because it still exists um and why bring it up if it doesn't need to right um mm. but the point is it shouldn't be something you should want, need to hide if you're just capable and good enough yeah and that took a lot of understanding to get to a point where i had to be like age for me is just a number it's experience that matters so 
someone could be 60 and have as little experience as someone who is 18 mm-hmm. or 17 because of how much they put themselves out there, which again brings me back to my absolute mantra of putting yourself out there. Um, and while I definitely believe in time building character, so I'm not mm-hmm. saying you having lived 18 years on this planet means you're as good as a 60 year old who's locked himself in his house and watched television. No, he might have more character in terms of having spent so many more years on this planet and experiencing so many more things in terms of the television or like, you know, meeting a few more people or doing a few more things than the 18 year old. But the point is if he has still experienced as much as that 18 year old has in terms Mm -hmm. of, putting himself out there people cultures types of work everything they could both have the same skill set and the same you know interpersonal skills and nothing stopping that 18 year old from doing what the 60 year old could be doing right now sure so basically age has yeah age is a number in that sense which has no real relevance to experience which is the main which counts for everything yeah, and definitely time, which is directly proportional to age, will bring in, because what is age at the end of the day? It's number of years, like you've been on this planet, right? Will develop character, for sure. Yeah. And it will develop perspective, mindset. Um, but experiences can do as much, if not more sometimes. Mm you know, and um, experiences can take you places. And these experiences include education. These experiences include exposure. These experiences include a lot of learning, which ultimately is what drives growth. You just got to keep learning. I've I've been wanting to come up with an equation for serendipity. And where I'm at right now is... um, Putting yourself out there multiplied by telling people what you're doing. So doing something interesting and telling people about it enough times will eventually result in a serendipitous outcome. I and that. I think that could be part of um, experience in a way. Just go out and get do something. But it also comes back to what you said at the start. In those conversations with producers, it's not just so tell me what's going on or like, what are you up to? It's also what your ideas are. Maybe you're not building something or doing something, but it's, it could be what you're bringing to the table is an idea or a skill set or something. It's, it's that kind of give and take. And if you do that, maybe not with one person, but with 10 people and it works out at the 10th time, you're going to be like, oh my God, can you believe that happened? How lucky was that? But it is that iterated kind of, uh, causality of serendipity. Yeah, but I love that equation. I think that's beautiful what you've come up with. It's really beautiful and actually makes me think how much more all of us can do in order to meet with serendipity more often. Yeah, and I think that's something that I'm reminding myself as well because this came from like a conversation I was having with a brilliant lawyer um, roughly a week ago, two weeks ago. Where I have this catch up with him every once in a while and I'm scheduled to bring him also onto the podcast. He's like, like very, very smart guy. He's an awesome guy as well. 
and he mm. was like oh let's catch up let me tell you what i'm what i've been up to and i was like dude i am so up for that like please tell me what you've been up to i'd love to know and then we can just chat and i realized that even within a bubble of doing good work which we might be doing if we don't tell people about it outside from our standard no, bubble exactly and there's a risk of just sticking within that and not learning because if you tell someone you have an idea they have something to build on it and then you can come up with a new partnership a new idea whatever it is even in your own so true I, i couldn't agree with that more so that that's so that's, that's where the idea came from so it's like serendipity mm-hmm. is doing something interesting multiplied by telling people about it i love that um in the interest of time then i do want to touch on your latest project <clears throat> not cut which is a short short film uh but i'll let you get into any kind of uh, description of it do you want to just briefly talk yeah. about it and what effect that's had sure so not cut is a short film with a lot of weight um not in not just in terms of concept and story but in terms of some very influential popular names attached to it like of course the producers ronnie and vidya as well as of course the lead actor vidya vidya balan such yeah vidya balan who's such a force such a powerful um woman in society today who has really impacted all of us in so many different ways through the stories she's told um so what is natkhat natkhat is a short film which is disruptive in the sense of format because in this short journey you are impacted tenfold you are impacted in a way wherein you experience a playfulness as well as extreme discomfort and reality mm-hmm. and because many of you have not yet watched it because it's not yet out we just had a world premiere and people who managed to catch it live watch it i don't want to put out any spoilers but what i want to say is that it addresses toxic masculinity and um brings to a fore the need of gender equality and it does this through a solution we have found to addressing gender inequality toxic masculinity which is parenting mm-hmm. so we see a solution to be parenting and when i say when i use the term parenting i don't mean just parents but i mean you and i can partake in parenting teachers can partake in parenting it's being um a proper role model a proper mentor a proper teacher a proper parent to the youth to children mm. because imitation culture is very real it exists everywhere it is but natural that someone um at a young age will imitate someone older or someone they look up to and in order for that imitation culture to evolve in the right way we need to be that right adult or that role model to the youth mm. and yeah and i think that is a very powerful solution for tomorrow it's we can change the rape culture in this country we can change the gender 
inequality by simply teaching our young ones what's right and wrong and correcting their course. And that's what Nutcut does. That's amazing. Um, is there, wow, I think we've got, we've got a lot that we've spoken about. Is there anything that you feel like we've missed out at all? Honestly, Anu, we've covered so much. Yes, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for doing this. Are you crazy? For what? Anytime. There you go. I hope you found that useful and informative. So many interesting and important things to take away from that. I completely agree with Sanaya's views on networking and putting yourself out there. I think that's so important. This obviously tied in with her point on experience and the quality of that experience. It makes a huge difference to the way we see work and our worldview, in fact, when we work with inspiring people that we can learn from and whom we can turn to for advice. Because you're not only learning how to do what you do better, but you also get a sense of what's possible from the vantage point of an optimist, if that makes any sense. I hadn't sat down to think of the importance of film and the significance of its impact, I think, until this conversation, which is crazy. I mean, you know these things, but you don't usually think about them in that way. I loved her story about how she switched uh, courses to film studies and has literally been making the most of that since then. She's amazing and I'm definitely going to get her back onto this podcast to discuss her non-profit and community-based work. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Again, please write in with your thoughts, comments. It's, it's always amazing when you do. Uh, so please keep doing that. And I will be back with a new guest in two weeks on a new episode of A Little Life. Thanks for listening.